Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. No matter where your travels take you, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. Choose from over 100,000 travel experiences in the U.S. and around the world with Get Your Guide. Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host Robert Lamb is not with me today, but he'll be joining you again next time. Today's episode is going to be an interview. This is a conversation I had with the accelerator physicist and author Susie Sheehy about her recent book, The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Changed the World. Susie's publisher sent us a copy of this book for review, and I really loved it. So it's a history of modern physics experiments from Röntgen's cathode ray tube and the discovery of X-rays all the way up to the Large Hadron Collider and beyond. And what makes this book really special, in my opinion, is that it focuses not just on theoretical advancements, but on the labor of designing and building experiments to test those new ideas. And because it illuminates so much about the experimental apparatus behind the progress of science, uh, I think this book has a lot of interesting things to say, not just about the, the history of our quest to understand matter and energy, but about epistemology and critical thinking and work. To read from her author bio... Susie Sheehy is a physicist, science communicator, and academic who divides her time between her research groups at the University of Oxford and the University of Melbourne. Her research addresses both curiosity-driven and applied areas and is currently focused on developing new particle accelerators for applications in medicine. Again, the book is called The Matter of Everything, and I guess that does it for the introduction. Here is my interview with Susie Sheehy. Susie Sheehy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Nice to be here. So I wanted to start off talking about how I think a lot of the histories of physics that I've read 
focus more on the the theoretical side, like what led to the insights theoretical physicists had, how they dreamed up their models and things like that. I really loved that this book was intensely focused on the experimental component of physics. And uh, there was a lot of focus on the details of the experiments, how they did it, and understanding experiments as human projects operating under constraints. What kind of insights do you think are revealed by looking at the history of particle physics through the experimental lens in particular, uh, especially things that you might miss if you only talk about physics as a sort of history of ideas? Yeah, you phrased that so beautifully in there, by the way, that the importance of experiments. Um, so I'm an experimental physicist, right? So one of the things that I observed when I sort of started on the journey of writing writing this book was that almost every other comparable book um, was written by a theoretical physicist. And so you'd get these stories where you get this wonderful insight of, of say, I know, Einstein or one of the key theoretical physicists um, of the age. And it was like, it was almost like they came to these insights purely from their own personal genius, right? And yeah. this was the story of physics that I was taught pretty much when I, when I did it at university as well. But it was also the story that comes across in these books. And I don't know whether this is just like an egotistical aggrandizing thing that people do. Certainly, these people are very, very smart, right? But they're not islands. And I think that's one of the key insights that, that you get from taking a different approach to looking at the history and looking more at um, the experiments and more at the wider view of how physics progresses. And I think any theoretical physicist today would also, and hopefully also those historically, would admit that, you know, their work is nothing without the work of the experimentalists. Because at the end of the day, physics is a subject which is trying to describe the universe, our actual universe, not just some theoretical mathematical universe that doesn't really exist. And so the only way to, to meet those two things in the middle um, is through experiment. You have to actually get out there and, um, and test nature. But that's where a lot of people, um, I think, naively think that we just, we know what we're doing with that, that we just, we can go out there and build an experiment and test or find this thing. And that once the theorist predicts it, that it's a straightforward journey. Uh, so that's, I think, the next sort of key insight there is that it is not a straightforward journey to discover and uncover um, the nature of our universe, especially on these tiny scales that we're looking at that are so much smaller than than what we can see with our own eyes. And so when you delve into that, then as you say, there's this detailed development of how experiments actually work, whether that's electronically, whether that's because they require 2,000 people uh, with different expertise to actually put them together. Um, and also just that co-development of technology and instrumentation along with the development of ideas and insights about the universe. And it really is sort of a synergistic development um, so there's a few, I think a few things there um, about throwing out the lone genius stereotype, managing to recognize how important it is that we actually interact in the real world and, and do experiments, um, and then just the unpredictable nature of doing those experiments at all. You mentioned in the book that um, some people think that Dirac's equation is uh, the most beautiful equation in all of physics. I'm sure that uh, people who have a lot of math and physics knowledge would consider that subjective. But it made me curious about the different ways that instruments within science can be perceived not only as useful or accurate, 
but sometimes aesthetically beautiful. So I, I was wondering about the other side of that. As an experimentalist, do you have an opinion on what is the most beautiful experiment in all of physics, or do you ha have at least a few candidates? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think um, I definitely appreciate the beauty of a well-designed experiment that can sort of cut through all the background noise um, and find the thing that they're looking for. Um, but I, I'd say I appreciate the beauty of an experiment in multiple dimensions, though, right? So you can, um, I can appreciate the beauty of a, an experiment which serendipitously found something that it didn't expect, um, as well as appreciating, you know, the sort of really well-designed, very specific experiment. But now you're putting me on the spot if you ask me what my favorite experiment was. I mean, in, in the book, I, I really focus on 12 key experiments that I chose from what could have been thousands, honestly, um, and focused on how those had contributed to our knowledge of particle physics um, over about the last 120 years. Uh, and I, I think it's easier probably for me to choose a favorite from the earlier ones of those because they're smaller. It's easier to understand all the different parts of the experiment. And so in that sense, in a beauty and aesthetic appreciation sense, I think I'm going to say the cloud chamber. And mm. this was developed in the early 1900s uh, by a physicist named uh, C.G.R. Wilson, Charles Wilson, whose first love was actually meteorology. Uh, but he was working in the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge in the UK um, alongside all the people doing all the, all the early work in radioactivity. So he was very well versed in radioactivity and, and those ideas. But he invented this chamber originally to try and study clouds and the interaction of light and electricity uh, in the atmosphere. And then he later realized when someone held a, an X-ray tube or he, he and a, a colleague held an X-ray tube to the side of it, that he could see the passage of radiation through this chamber, which had a sort of, in his case, water vapor. And nowadays we use alcohol vapors. Um, and these little trails would form like little tracks of cloud uh, as the radiation went through and left a little bit of energy inside the chamber. And I find this beautiful because it's really the first time as a species that we get to visualize radiation. We get to visualize this thing, which is otherwise extremely, uh, you know, abstract and difficult to understand. And now we're seeing its effects almost in real time. So you can photograph as particles pass through. And then we get and I think the beauty comes in because it's this lovely interaction between our own capacities as humans and the development of a new instrumentation. Because then you can take, you can leave these chambers up on mountains, you can take photographs of the interactions there. And from that, we discover lots of new things, including um, we, we discover antimatter for the first time. Um, so the positron is the opposite version of the electron. And when they come together, they annihilate, but they can also be produced in pairs, electron-positron pairs. And there were um, positrons detected by a guy called Carl Anderson um, in the US, uh, and he discovered them in his experiments before he'd read about Dirac's beautiful equation. I'm coming back to the equation again now. Um, he actually wasn't aware of Dirac's work, which was published in 1929. But in 1932, he'd built this enormous chamber with this huge magnet around it and lugged it up a mountain and discovered this this type of antimatter. And I, I find that um, really beautiful because then he's literally able to 
use our internal uh, sort of track recognition, you know, our pattern finding system, our brain, um, to look at the photographs and actually see that there's something new there. Um, and there were other particles discovered later as well, the muon being a, a key one, which is a heavy version of the electron. Um, and, and it was really the the instrument of choice for many, many years in the field. And it came from a meteorologist. So I don't know, there's something in that story for me which is just beautiful about how we can use our creativity and sort of reuse of ideas in adjacent fields to really make amazing discoveries. Yeah, uh, I love that example too. And uh, there's a kind of beauty and a kind of lightness and elegance to it that in a way seems contrasted by uh, other experiments you described that are also uh, incredibly important and and wonderful stories to understand, like uh, one that stands sort of opposite it in my mind is the story of Ernest Lawrence's team and their cyclotron. And mm. th- this chapter struck me as interesting in part because uh, I think this is the one where you illuminate a, a history of what struck me as interesting mistakes. Like you mentioned a, a faulty reading um from an accelerator experiment due to, I think it was like deuteron coding on target elements. I, please correct me if I'm getting this wrong. And also an incident where they accidentally made the whole lab radioactive without realizing <laughs> it, which uh, it, it interfered with their measurements on some uh, on a Geiger counter-like device. So uh, what what is the role of, uh, of error and making a mess in scientific uh, experiments? Do you know, I've been thinking about this more since writing the book. And I think we don't, I think we don't acknowledge the role of error and failure enough in science. In fact, we try and cover it up. It's, it's a huge, there's a huge issue, in fact, with failed experiments not being published. And in some fields like medicine, that's, that's a huge issue, actually. Um, in physics, it's less of an issue, but it still happens. But Ernest Lawrence's um, example of the cyclotron is a fantastic example where uh, by sort of realising their mistakes and their errors, they really made progress in their understanding. So as you say, they developed this particle accelerator, this circular machine. Um, and then uh, over time, they realize that they're not seeing the results that they think they should be seeing. Um, because, for example, in one in one situation, basically everything had become radioactive. And so all of their measurement devices were just picking up all of the background radiation and, and not the radiation they were trying to, to look for. Um, but that helped them understand what was happening in the machine as as it was accelerating. And they missed a number of key discoveries that were made by other research groups around the world. But they didn't mind too much. And Lawrence, Lawrence sort of had this, this mindset, which is relevant to the question of, of errors and failures, which is, you know, he's, he sort of would like to say there's research enough for everyone or there's discovery enough for everyone. And so he was this big believer that he was quite quite a futurist, I guess, because at the start of his career, he was, I think, late 20s, early 30s when he first invented the cyclotron. And he invented it because he couldn't see a path of the existing technology to the end of his career even. You know, he was sort of looking 30 years in the future going, well, these technologies are just, they're going to be outdated by the time I get to that point. So I'm going to have to invent something new to give myself, you know, a, a path of growth through through my career. And boy, did he get it. You know, he, he really, um, the cyclotron was, an incredible invention, and they're still built today in hospitals to generate radioisotopes for uh, medical procedures, which is, you know, very, very useful. Um, but obviously, along the way, he could be perceived at having failed to make key discoveries in in physics. Um, so I think induced radioactivity was one of the ones that that he missed actually, and was found by Joliot and Curie in um, in France. Uh, that's uh, uh, Marie Curie's daughter, Irene Irene Curie. 
Um, so I've been thinking about this since writing the book, and I, I think I'd like to make the analogy with um, in the arts, right? So if you if you have a creative practice in the arts, failure is an error. It's just an inherent part of it, and it's also very much acknowledged that by failing or making an error, you may just stumble upon something new, a new way of doing something, a new uh, invention. I'm even thinking in in the culinary world. You know, I know of a chef um, who who now runs a, a three Michelin starred restaurant in in the UK. And he one day he accidentally dropped hot coal into a vat of cooking oil, and so they later you know decided to taste it and see how it tasted, and it, it tasted amazing. And he uses it in his signature dishes in a in a three Michelin starred restaurant now. And I love those stories of where errors lead you to new things and new ideas. And I do think in science we shy away a little bit from that or we like to sort of cover it up and then we publish a paper that says the story was a very linear one and you know we made all these discoveries um and in digging into the history of these experiments which was so critical in understanding particle physics I did discover that there was probably more failure than even I expected Mm. and as an experimentalist myself I've just come to accept that I often don't fully know what I'm doing because no one has ever tried to do it before. Um, and that sometimes I'm going to try things and they're going to fail. And there's a constant process in my lab um, with my students and staff of sort of openly talking about this, right? In a, you know, being candid about it and, and sort of being like, that's all right. You know, like, it's okay that it failed. You didn't know what you were doing because nobody knew what they were doing. Um, mm. But for example, you know, you might consider an earlier experiment in the book by Willem Rodkin, who discovered X-rays, and he discovered them because a, a sort of painted fluorescent screen across his lab was glowing when he had a, a tube, um, a cathode ray tube, uh, on in his lab, and he noticed the glow and he decided to investigate it. Now we often refer to that as serendipitous, but depending on your perspective, you might consider it to be an error. You know, you probably shouldn't have had a the wrong detector. <laughs> you know, sort of out in the lab at at the time. Um, the other person that comes to mind is Robert Millikan, who did um, 12 years worth of experiments trying to measure what's called the photoelectric effect, which is the electrical current that flows when you shine light on particular metals. And this is an interesting one where along the way, sort of the early phases of quantum mechanics had had come around. And Einstein in particular had come out with this equation which predicted what should happen when you shine this light onto different metals. And the upshot of Einstein's theory uh, was really abhorrent to to the experimentalist, to Robert Millikan. He called it the reckless hypothesis. And that's because this hypothesis implied that um, light would be acting more like a particle than like a wave in this experiment. And so he set out to prove Einstein wrong, spent 12 years in the lab trying to do it, and all he did was prove Einstein right to a better precision than anyone had before. So again, you might think, and he even thought that he was failing, right? He thought he was failing as an experimentalist. Uh, he was really struggling with it. He had to build all his own equipment from scratch. And then at the end of 12 years, he sort of comes out with this result, um, which I think even when he published it, he still didn't fully believe, but he was able to sort of say, well, it is consistent with Einstein's prediction. And then later on, about another 10 years later, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for that and another famous experiment that he did about the charge on the electron. And he changes his tune. And I found this fascinating that, you know, 
this very fallible nature of the experimentalist of sort of thinking one thing is going to happen and holding this bias that, you know, no nature can't possibly work that way. It's ridiculous. It's you know preposterous that a particle could be a wave, you know, sorry, a light could be a wave and a particle. Um, and then he gets to his Nobel Prize speech or lecture and then he's saying, you know, however many years ago, when, when I set out to uh, to demonstrate Einstein's photoelectric theory, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's, he's making out like he, he meant to do it all along. Um, mm. And I was, I was shocked. I was like, did someone transcribe that incorrectly? I don't think so. Um, and so, so it turns out that, you know, I think his bias against it was what, it gave him this force, this willpower to persist at his experiment for 12 years because he was just like, emotionally, he was just like, this cannot be right. This cannot be right. Um, and, you know, you would you would say that he failed in that enterprise because he was wrong and Einstein was right. <laughs> um, but this is, I think this is how science progresses and it's an important part of how science progresses is that, yes, we're all human. We're all, you know, we come in with our biases. We're very fallible. But isn't it amazing that we can then, you know, use the scientific process and apply, you know, our sort of apply things to that process to try and unbias ourselves from the results and come out with the knowledge that is, uh, you know, sort of accurate regardless of the fact that you didn't believe it going into doing the experiment. I, th I think that's actually a pretty amazing thing that we can do. And like the culture of experiment is the constraint on that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. 
Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Well, regarding uh, ideas that are wrong but persistent, uh, one of my favorite characters uh, in the book is is Ernest Rutherford. And there's a part where you quote Ernest Rutherford saying uh, that he was originally brought up to think of the atom as, uh, I think the quote is, a nice hard fellow, red or gray in color, according to your taste. And uh, that struck me as very funny. But then you also mentioned in a footnote that even many physicists still, despite knowing better, think of subatomic particles and atoms as little balls. How do you visualize subatomic particles, uh, and, or do you at all? And is there a better way we should try to picture this scale of matter uh, in the mind's eye, or is it pointless to even try? So uh, I'm going to sheepishly admit that, like all the other physicists I've asked, we don't want to admit it. But because the first time we were ever introduced to the concept of atoms and particles, they were little hard spheres. <laughs> when you say protons and neutrons and electrons in the atom, I have, I have a terrible picture in my head that I know is completely wrong and yet it persists. Um, you know, I have this, this, yeah, I have little hard spheres in my mind, just like Rutherford did. Um, and I mean, this is a, this is a huge disservice that we do ourselves, I think, by by um, persisting to describe them this way. But but here's here's a, I think, a key point about the models that we have in our heads, and I, I will answer the question about how better to visualize it in a moment. Physics and all the natural sciences really are sciences of different scales, mm. and all the models that we have and all the theories that we have apply on different scales. So if you're a chemist or a biologist, it's well, other than some realms of chemistry, it's probably okay for you to visualize atoms and particles as little hard spheres because the models that predict the behavior which you're interested in on the scale that you're interested in, which is now more, much more macroscopic than microscopic, um, you know, it works perfectly fine. You can sort of approximate it. And quantum mechanics, though, is obviously the science when we get down to that very, very small level. Um, and we've realized that it no longer works in the same analogous way to, say, billiard balls on a, on a billiard table. And it works in a very different way. Everything is much more prob probabilistic. Nothing is as certain. Uh, we can't know things like the position and the momentum at the same time precisely. Uh, so everything becomes a little fuzzier. If I were to try and encourage you to properly visualize an atom, first of all, you know, the, the central nucleus of an atom is extremely dense and extremely small compared to the outer size of the atom. And Rutherford had another beautiful analogy for this, which is um, that if the electrons, which now you're considering in your head the electrons to be kind of a, a wave or a sphere or a sort of much more, you know, much less like a little hard dot and much more like a probability cloud, <laughs> um, that cloud would be out at the walls of a cathedral. Uh, and if, if that was the size of a cathedral, then the nucleus in the center would be the size of a fly or a pea 
in the middle of the cathedral. So first of all, the scales inside the atom are very different to the pictures that we look at when we're when we're taught this kind of science because you just can't fit those scales on a page and have them be sensible, right? So we, we condense everything down. Um, so first of all, for most of us, the scales of what things look like inside the atom are kind of wrong. Um, and this was also something that really blew the minds of even people like artists, like Vasily Kandinsky was um, really affected by this idea that the atom is mostly empty space. It really um, shifted his perception on what nature was made of because suddenly everything around us that seemed solid um, is made of almost nothing. And it's purely the forces between these sort of ephemeral objects which are creating our experience of everything around us, which back in 2018, I gave a, a, a TEDx Sydney talk and people have reflected back to me that the moment when they got shivers was when I said that you're not even touching the chair beneath you. You're hovering ever so slightly above it. And it's just the forces between the electrons in the chair and the electrons in your body opposing each other that makes you feel like you're in contact with the chair, but you're never, the, the particles are never actually physically in contact with each other. It's just the electromagnetic force and gravity. First of all, that is, is a different way to view it. The scale is a different way to view it. And then not just the, not just the electrons are, are wave-like, but also those fundamental particles at the center, the protons and neutrons have constituent quarks. Um, and even then, you know, we say that there's two types of quarks, up and down quarks inside the protons and neutrons, but there's really a whole lot more. So it's kind of like Pandora's box. It's like if you go down further, you open it up and you're like, oh, there's all this other mess in there as well. And it depends how hard I look and at what energy scale I look at. And it's just, you know, so I like to imagine the nucleus as sort of, uh, as, a, as a, you know, a group of protons and neutrons. But then if I try and visualize opening up those protons and neutrons, that's where even my brain goes, nope. No, I can't do that. That's too too complex. <laughs> so you give a bunch of examples in the book of discoveries in the history of particle physics that were thought by some to be pure intellectual curiosities with no practical use, only to later become very important in broader civilization. Maybe they become the backbone of whole new genres of technology or uh, or unlock new discoveries, sort of unlock new wings in the mansion of physics. Uh, do you want to tell the story of one or two examples like this? Sure. I think let's start right at the start, the discovery of the first subatomic particle, the electron. Um, and this was done using the same experimental equipment, basically, as the X-ray discovery. Um, so a cathode ray tube. And J.J. Thompson in England in 1897 sort of picked up where others had left off and realized that he could do a series of experiments bending around the beam of so-called cathode rays. So that's a glowing green uh, glowing green ray down the center of this tube that they didn't and they didn't know how it worked at that time or what it was made of and so he set out to investigate the nature of these cathode rays um, by deflecting them with electric fields and magnetic fields um, and catching the charge and seeing how it moved around and as a result of all of those experiments which I should say he definitely needed help with even though I say it was him uh, he had to have his expert glassblower Ebenezer Everett create all the experimental apparatus for him because J.J. Thompson, despite being like the leading physicist in England at the time, was, uh, I think, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was like exceptionally helpless with his hands is the phrase that comes to <laughs> mind. 
<laughs> so the, the, that's a quote of someone describing his, his experimental skills. Um, so somebody else had to create all of his apparatus. But anyway, he was able to use Ebenezer's uh, apparatus to bend um, the electrons, uh, to bend the beam around. And from that, he managed to establish that um, not only is the beam made uh, of particles, but that those particles were lighter than any atom that had ever been observed before. And so he was able to establish that this must be some kind of new fundamental particle, uh, which we now call the electron, which is about 2,000 times lighter than, than the heaviest atom that had been seen before. And he was able to tell that that was really a fundamental component of matter because it didn't matter which cathode he used. So the cathode is the part that the rays jump out of. And it if it was just an atom, then you would expect if you changed the cathode or if you if, or if you changed the gas inside the tube, that the results would vary, and they didn't. So that told him that this electron was somehow inside every single type of atom that he was working with. Um, so that was that was an amazing discovery. And there used to be uh, a toast in the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge where he made this discovery, um, and they have this annual party where you know they sort of. I don't know, sing, they make up songs and they make up poems and they have a fancy dinner. And, you know, having spent uh, over a decade myself in the UK at, at Oxford, I'm kind of imagining this in a wood panelled room, you know, with candlesticks mm. and fancy, fancy food and everyone's wearing black tie. And um, there used to be a toast at this annual event where they would toast to the electron and they would say, to the electron, may it never be of use to anyone. <laughs> um, because when he discovered it, it really was just him trying to figure out the fundamental nature of how these rays happened in this in this tube that numerous scientists had in their labs around the world. And in the few years after he discovered the electron, he also discovered the process called thermionic emission, which is the process by which the electrons actually jump out of materials when you heat them up. And this then became an incredibly important piece of knowledge, which he obviously published and, you know, wrote all, you know, many things about. Because a few years, uh, a few years later, an electrical engineer um, would sort of pick up this information and a previous discovery that had been made by um, Thomas Edison when he was trying to manufacture reliable light bulbs. And they'd put those two ideas together um, and come up with uh, the first electric valve. So that is a device which can control the flow of electricity. Um, you apply a small voltage and it either lets the current pass or it stops the current. Um, and then more and more ele electronic devices then were invented after this. And in order to make those devices, they were 100% reliant on J.J. Thompson's um, materials on on his theories on and on the things that he had developed as a result of his experiments um, and those early tubes were very similar in their makeup to the tubes that Thompson was working with anyway it's all very yeah very similar te technology but one thing I find quite interesting is that Thomas Edison just you know he sort of made this discovery which was called the Edison effect um, which was kind of about the flow of electricity but he hadn't fully understood it he just if he put an extra electrode inside a light bulb, he noticed that it affected the flow of electricity. And he patented it, but he couldn't think of any good ideas for it. So he just set it aside and ignored it. And if that had been the history, then nothing, you know, nothing would have been done uh, about it at all. And I, I, I'm always amazed that people sort of look at Edison and his trial and error approach, and they hold it up as this example of amazing innovation. And I'm like, well, okay, but he ignored possibly the most important thing he ever discovered. <laughs> 
Um, and it was only because other people picked up the ideas and understood it through J.J. Thompson's investigations and his theories um, that then it led to the first electronic devices, the first um, and, and our ability through vacuum tubes to create things like uh, the telecommunications industry, to, you know, and long distance communications, the first computers, all of the early electronics were based on these vacuum tubes. And of course, that's changed a bit now. Everything's based in silicon and it, in the future, who knows what, be, what it will be based on. But if if that fundamental investigation hadn't happened at the right time and that knowledge wasn't there for the electrical engineers to build off, I sort of question, perhaps we'd have got there eventually with the electronics industry, but the story would have looked very, very different. Um, so that's, I find that an interesting example of the ways in which this sort of curiosity-driven research, you know, trying to uncover the nature of the universe and our innovation stories and our entrepreneurial stories kind of merge all into one and you start to see it not as a one is superior to the other, but that they are essential to each other um, and that we need both approaches and we can't just always sort of seed fund some entrepreneurial project or support some you know innovator who's full of energy you actually do need the people in the background doing that curiosity driven research in order to have new knowledge for those people to build on well uh speaking of the people in the background uh another interesting thing to me about a lot of the stories you tell are that some physics experiments that are very important in history are surprisingly laborious. Like I think of the example of uh, particle counting, these experiments that involve just staring at a screen for hours and counting flashes of light by hand. Yeah. What are some what are some of the ways that crucial physics discoveries depended on types of work that people might not think of when they try to imagine what scientists are doing? Yeah, I think there's a we love the we love the moment of discovery, right? But we're we're often unwilling to figure out exactly what went into that discovery. And I have to say, it's often um, it often comes as a surprise to people, as you say, how laborious it was. So, so that example you're talking about is in those early days of nuclear physics, where the only detectors we had were these fluorescent screens that lit up when high energy particles hit them. And so, in um, in Cambridge and in, in the UK, especially. They trained all their students and all their staff of how to sit in a dark room and look through a microscope at these plates when there were radioactive sources present and uh, count each flash of light. But of course, every human eye and brain is different. And so everyone was everyone was trained up and kind of measured um, to see how good they were at this particle counting, right? So there's all this, I mean, to get reliable scientific results, you need things like calibration, you need these boring things, you know, the, the things that are not sexy or exciting about science. Good calibration, you need to know your instruments very, very, very well. Um, and I think any physicist today would tell you that until you know your experiment inside out, you will not get reliable results from it. And it's something that frustrates the heck out of uh, undergraduate students in the lab when they're learning physics and they're trying to recreate experiments that were done in the past. And even though they've got apparatus that someone has prepared for them that should be working, they're still driven mad by the intricacies of it. And this is the reality. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, but you know, it's the reality of experimental life, which is that this stuff is not easy. And if it was easy, we would have done it hundreds of years ago, right? Um, but it's it's difficult. It's often laborious. And 
often what we're trying to do in inventing new technologies and pushing at the cutting edge of technologies in experimental science is sometimes to get around the laboriousness or even just to create a method to collect enough data that we can actually that we can actually use. So obviously nowadays we don't use people sitting in a room um, particle counting, but there was a whole phase of experimental physics where after the technologies were invented that allowed you to photograph the tracks of particles, well then who processes the photographic data, right? Who maps out those tracks and and who who turns all of that into tables that can be analysed um, and searched for new physics? And the answer that most people probably don't realise is women did it. Um, and in the early days, these women were called there was the the computers, so the the women who did um, calculations by hand before the computer meant something very different to us. And in particle physics, even into the forties, fifties, and sixties, you had the so-called scanning girls, and these were women who, almost all women, uh, there were some men who did it. I should I should say, um, who would sit at these enormous light tables with the with the copies of the photographic images, and they would follow a very precise. Um, sort of protocol in mapping out where the interesting things were in those photographs. And there were many, many discoveries made this way. Something I do find interesting in the history, and, and I'm sure we'll get to the, the discussion of women in physics in, in a moment, but um, while some of these women were so-called scanning girls, it was also considered to be a task that um, all the physicists should also know how to do. And and this continues to this day, even when you get these big collaborations like the Large Hadron Collider, there's a sort of commitment to the experiment that you do some of this grunt work, you do some of this laborious work. And today that means sitting in a control room and overseeing uh, the running of enormous colliders and detectors. But back then it would mean that you would do your share of analysing these images. Um, so, so this in a way is inseparable work. It, it's specialised work um, but it's work where the, the physicists did as well. Um, and there were female physicists at that time who were also doing these kinds of analyse- analyses. Um, and I almost wonder in this time, and this is just a, it's just an idea that has come to me a, a number of times, I almost wonder if the women who were working as physicists in those laboratories were somewhat overlooked because the women's work at the time was... Uh, as the scanning girls, mostly, you know, and so there was this gender divide in roles. And even though the women were contributing, and some of them were, were physicists, not, you know, they weren't just hired as scanning girls. And yet their contributions were overlooked far more often than the contributions of their male colleagues. And I, I do wonder how this gender divide in the roles of this grunt work actually played into that overlooking at the time. Um, but that's just one. It's just one aspect of the sort of gendered nature of physics as we as we now know it. I think. Um, but yeah, the the I think a lot of people would be really surprised by how laborious a lot of the work is, and of course, that's where automation nowadays and even AI tools are just uh, changing the game so dramatically. Because now that you can automate all of these processes and all of our detectors are you know full of electronics instead of photographs. Um, you know, the process of actually gathering the data is now much, much easier. And so people and people can access the data around the world, um, including via the World Wide Web, which was invented at CERN just for that purpose. <laughs> um, and 
so now we can focus on the analysis and we can focus on the physics and the contributions to the hardware and software become the grunt work and, and that part of the, the project as the experimentalist. So, yeah, it's an interesting shift through through time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Coming back to the issue of women in the history of physics, uh, you mentioned in the book this idea of the Matilda effect uh, in physics, and it strikes me that there are at least two different ways that uh, the historical discrimination against women in, in physics manifests. There's one where, like, there's just direct limitations on their participation, like uh, some researchers having projects they considered not suitable for women to work on, or the marriage bar where women who had previously been involved in research were disallowed from doing so after marriage. Uh, but there are also cases where women researchers made significant contributions to physics discoveries, and their role uh, in this work was sometimes deliberately censored from public records and recognition. Could you talk about a couple of these examples? Yeah, sure. I think that's really um, insightful that, that there are these different ways in which um, women's involvement in physics was 
a stopped as you say the you know sort of prevented but then also that their contributions were diminished and that second one is really where the matilda effect comes in um so one person i'm i'm thinking of here her, um her name is marietta blau and she was a researcher in austria uh and she invented a new type of particle detector. So I talked before about how beautiful I thought the cloud chamber was. That's a very active detector. Things have to happen in real time. You have to photograph things in real time. Uh, it's very laborious to look after. Um, and what she invented instead, because she had a background both in physics and photography, was a photographic plate method of detecting particles. So she had these very thick so-called emulsions, um, and they would create stacks of these emulsions for high-energy charged particles to go through. And this now, instead of being looked after and photographed at every minute, could just be left at the top of a mountain for a month, two months, um, and it would just collect data over time, and then it would be pulled apart and, and analysed. And Blau's invention led to a whole load of discoveries, and she herself was actually nominated for um, the Nobel Prize, but but never, never won it. Um, and... Uh, her invention led to, I think, at least, I can think of at least two other Nobel Prizes that relied on her um, her invention of this photographic emulsion method. But she also actually um, made amazing discoveries with it herself, uh, one of which was she called a, a star of disintegration, which was when a high-energy cosmic ray coming from space came in and hit a uh, was sort of a direct hit on a heavy nucleus. And then that nucleus itself sort of exploded and it left this amazing shower like a supernova on the um, on the photographic emulsions. And this was a, you know, she, she published, I'm pretty sure that one was published in, in Nature. Um, and her, her sort of contemporary or, or not long after she was working, there was an Indian physicist named Biba Chowdhury working in India. And she was one who was told, uh, that her professor didn't have any um, suitable projects for her as a woman, but she persisted anyway uh, and eventually sort of, I guess, won him over because she ended up working with him. Um, and she used similar photographic plates, but um, not of such great quality because she didn't have them available to her. It was during World War II in, and she was in India, so the supply chain wasn't great. Um, but she actually uh, used these photographic plates um, up mountains in, in India and then she managed to discover that two different types of particles, which we would now call the muon and the pion, and those were um, those were some of the first observations of those particles. And I, as far as I can tell, it was the first time when it had been really recognised that there were two different particles. But I think she couldn't quite, because of the quality of her equipment, she couldn't quite sort of say what was what or, you know, the difference in masses between the two or something like that was missing. But this is a first authored paper in Nature, and this time I know it was definitely in, in Nature, you know, the top top journal in the world. Um, and then in the 1950s, so not long after, Cecil Powell working in England, um, oh, sorry, his Nobel Prize was 1950. I think uh, his work would have been late 40s. Um, he used exactly the same technique with superior emulsions to discover the pion and in his earlier writing in his in, uh, it's definitely in at least one textbook that he writes about he acknowledges Bieber Chowdhury's earlier work and references her nature paper and then when he wins the Nobel Prize in 1950 every reference of his that referenced her work are not used in the citation for the Nobel Prize so all the papers that are cited of his for the Nobel Prize were the ones that didn't 
recognize the earlier work of this woman working in in India. Um, mm. And I had never heard of her before I wrote this book. I'd never come across her story. Um, but I thought that was phenomenal because Powell himself was not, you know, he wasn't a reprehensible human. He was a very left-leaning liberal um, person. He had an unusually high number of female physicists in his lab um, in Bristol in the UK. And I think he himself was, I, I, I haven't looked into his sort of journals and things, whether they exist. I would love to know how he felt about the fact that he had recognised the precedent and the Nobel Prize Committee had not. Um, mm. And so Biba Chowdhury is someone that even my particle physics colleagues have never heard of, even though she made this amazing discovery. Um, and so these kinds of behaviours of sort of the ignoring of the women's contribution, like people will use their contributions but won't acknowledge them properly. And so we get this historical track record of, you know, the Nobel Prize winners who are almost always men, other than Marie Curie, because um, she was so damn good no one could deny it. <laughs> but uh, And you get these contributions of these women sort of falling by the wayside. And it's called the Matilda effect after um, Matilda Gage, who was a suffragist, who first recognised that the contributions of women, and back then she was talking about the contributions to technology, but she first recognised that these contributions were being overlooked or attributed to their male counterparts or peers or even their husbands. Um and not properly attributed to the women who made them um, because of the biases that existed in our society. And a historian named uh, Margaret Rossiter uh, sort of coined this term, the Matilda effect, named after Matilda Gage, and really encouraged all of us to look for those stories when we're looking at the history of especially tech, you know, technological fields and highly technical fields like physics where there is a lack of, of women today. Um, first of all, because, and even I wasn't aware of this, that, you know, you will probably find women that you weren't aware of. And this was absolutely my experience in writing this story. But secondly, she then encouraged us to write their stories back in um, because, you know, there's sort of no other way to to correct the record. And they have simply been overlooked. And so, I mean, what could I do other than, you know, it was sort of a call to arms as far as I was concerned, because here was I, you know, a female physicist today, having never heard of these women who made these amazing discoveries. And I thought, well, if I've never heard of them and I'm writing a book about the history of these experiments, then probably no one else has ever heard of them. And that that turned out to be true. Um, and so it was just such a wonderful privilege, actually, to take up Margaret Rossiter's, you know, sort of call to arms and write their stories back into the main stories of the history of these experiments because they're so so important and to me as a as a female physicist working today it made me realize you know all all of the the people who laid the foundations of my field whom I sort of grew up in the field thinking that they were pretty much all men other than Marie Curie um that that was that was false and it, it created for me this sense of sort of belonging that I didn't expect to get out of the process of writing this book. I sort of thought, wow, women like me have always been there, women who've been curious about the universe, women who've wanted to be in the lab and using their technical skills and making these contributions to society and to our knowledge have always been there. This isn't a weird thing that I'm doing. I'm not unusual <laughs> to to want to do this. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've since had that sentiment reflected back by uh, women, young and old, actually, you know, sort of young women starting out thinking of whether physics is for them. I've had some lovely feedback that 
they they you know sort of read the book they read about these women who fought you know I mean it was so hard to achieve that as well because often these women were denied formal education in physics they weren't even allowed in the lecture theatres so to realize that they were there and the things that they achieved just uh you know was a very very encouraging and positive thing for me even though in their own lives it was obviously a very negative experience sometimes but um to me today these stories writing them back in brings I think a, a new perspective on on who gets to do physics it's definitely a powerful thing learning these stories. So I want to come to the part of the book where you you talk about uh, particle accelerators. Um, clearly, you have a love for accelerators. Uh, that's your field. Imagine somebody who is generally positive about science, but views particle accelerators, especially the big projects, the big colliders, as maybe uh, too big and complicated to be charismatic as uh, like objects of the imagination and maybe views their findings as too abstract to digest. What would you tell this person to give them particle accelerator fever? Like, wh- how would you make them fall in love? Oh, that's really that's really interesting. So I think we live in an interesting time in terms of particle accelerators because you know, obviously they're very well developed now and we have these enormous machines. So the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland is 27 kilometres in circumference, 100 metres underground, right? It's freaking enormous and it's very difficult to wrap your head around. Um, First of all, I would say to anybody who doesn't find that kind of experiment charismatic on paper, I implore you to go and visit. It will blow your mind. Um, Honestly, it is just such an enormous feat of human ingenuity. And today, in order to achieve these enormous experiments, um, we all have to work together and collaborate. And CERN is an amazing example of that. And um, the the big national labs in the US have also um, been great examples of that, where you're bringing together experts from so many different areas, because these these projects are things that we cannot achieve alone. Um, now, CERN is a wonderful example because it was created post-World War II somewhat as a peace-building project. Um, so in its remit or in its constitution is science for peace. So they are not allowed to work on any defence-related projects. They're not allowed to work on, on anything with weapon ability is probably the word that I should use. Um, they're not even allowed to turn a profit, not even in the gift shop, um, which took some people by by surprise. And, and I've had a few people comment on that, but I noted that in the book. But to me, it was obvious because it's CERN um, and they exist you know, to seek new knowledge in physics and they exist sort of for the, the betterment of, of humanity in, in a sort of grand sense. And so after 1956, you've got people working at CERN across borders from countries who were at war just a few years earlier. Um, and this continues today. You know, there are both Russian and Ukrainian scientists working at CERN alongside each other. Um, and uh, and so CERN really is this amazing human project where we've learned to collaborate with thousands of people to achieve things that one certainly one lab can't do alone, one nation can't do alone. Um, These are are truly global projects. Um, So much so that sort of successful collaboration that even the UN has come to people at CERN, have come to people at CERN and and, um, tried to work together on, okay, how come CERN is so successful in its collaboration, right? What can the rest of us learn from the way that CERN collaborates uh, that could benefit the rest of the world? And so even if the technology doesn't float your boat, I think the human collaboration aspect of it is something which most people find quite inspiring. Um, The other side of that 
is actually around the technology itself. And as you say, I'm a total nerd for particle accelerators. It is my professional day job. I design particle accelerators. I love it. They're great machines. Um, And one of the reasons I love it and the reason I chose it uh, back when I chose my PhD topic was because someone who turned out to be my PhD supervisor, he called me and he was like, so this isn't what you applied for because originally I applied to do particle physics with you know, Higgs boson type stuff. And he said, okay, hear me out, hear me out. I want to design a new type of particle accelerator to treat cancer. And I was just like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Why are you firing beams at people? Um, and it turned out I was just, I, I just was a bit naive. I didn't realise that you could use these technologies at smaller scales for all sorts of societal applications. Um, so about half of all cancer treatments are actually done using small particle accelerators um, for what's called radiotherapy, um, which is one of the most successful forms of cancer treatment that we've ever had. Um, and it's a small electron accelerator. It generates X-rays, and then you shape those to um, the tumor inside the body. And the whole accelerator actually rotates around the patient to be able to deliver beams from different angles. And nowadays, we have more advanced forms of cancer treatment using heavier particles like protons and carbon ions that are more precise in the way that they deposit the dose. And that was the area that um, I did my PhD on. And uh, even today, I run a research group about accelerators for for medical applications. Um, And so when you look at it, there's about 50,000 particle accelerators in the world, and only a fraction of a percent are actually used for particle physics. And so what has happened since we first invented accelerators in the 1920s and 30s is that as we invent these new technologies um, and the knowledge of how to accelerate beams of fundamental particles and control them, more and more applications have emerged. So not just in cancer treatment, but also in um, in industry. So you can use uh, particle accelerators to change the color of a gemstone um, by bombarding diamonds. Uh, you know, diamond companies can change the, the color of a gemstone, um, often from clear to, to pink. Now that's, you know, that's quite capitalistic, isn't it? You're just trying to gain a bit more money. That's not really a very, very, very useful thing. But actually all the devices that we um, used today uh, rely on electronic chips. And today those are so small that you have to implant ions one by one. You can't do that using chemistry. You have to do it using effectively a small uh, particle accelerator. And so almost everywhere you look in every aspect of society, you will find somewhere in there a story about how we use these really advanced technologies um, to create sort of the modern world around us. And yet we almost always don't know don't know that it's there. And some of the most, um, I think, inspiring work that happens there is when we're looking at things like, um, you know, in the environment or in cultural heritage. So we're able to do really advanced dating techniques, um, putting together, you know, the deep prehistorical story of our earth and and our species and other species um, across large tracts of time because we have these techniques that come from fundamental physics. And so this is where I get really excited is because I'm like, okay, so I can sit in the lab every day, I can design these machines, I can test them, and they can be used for everything from, you know, uh, looking at an artwork to discover whether it's uh, real or fake um, to 
shrinking the shrink wrap that goes around a Christmas turkey. That's a real application. Uh, polymer cross-linking is the, the technical term, but, you know, um, you know, to uncovering the Higgs boson and the secrets of the universe. And to me, the fact that it's the same physics and the same area of research that I can do that, that contributes to all of these different areas of our society, that gets me really excited because I'm never bored. I can always choose a new application. Um, I can always choose a new type of machine to work on. Um, and we're always trying to make improvements in the energy efficiency, you know, trying to make things smaller and better and cheaper, um, and just trying to push forward the frontiers of these technologies using our knowledge of fundamental physics in order to, uh, to do some good in the world you know, to actually uh, make a difference to people's lives. And that's why I show up in the lab every day. And I've had a lot of people say, wow, I had no idea that you could do that with physics. That's amazing. Um, and so I've been told on a number of occasions that my job today is kind of the the current equivalent of being a rocket scientist. You know, I'm, I'm sort of working on this cutting edge of technology, which is taking us to new frontiers of knowledge and exploration. And um while it's not quite as dramatic as a rocket when you start up one of these machines, <laughs> it is to me incredibly inspiring. And every every approach that we take, whether it's collaborating, you know, in a multidisciplinary sense, I, I collaborate very strongly with cancer researchers nowadays, um, or collaborating across different nations and different technical skills. Um, I think really this this type of research is sort of unique in a way, but it's also representative of the approach that I think um, has led us to so many successes, both uh, you know, both in science, but also um, in terms of improving our our lives as as people. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California. And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. 
New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. I have a question about um, how you approach experiments in physics. Uh, when you're doing an experiment and you're, you're getting results that are not at all what you expect to see, how do you prioritize exploring the options that what you expect to see is wrong versus there is something wrong with your method? I always err on the side of assuming I'm an idiot. So, um, <laughs> which is maybe just imposter syndrome, but no, okay. This is, this is kind of what I mean about ensuring you 100% understand your apparatus. So typically when you start out an experiment, and I'm thinking here of just a small experiment that I built in the, in the UK, um, and when we first started using it, we'd get all these like electrical signals that we just didn't understand. Um, and... So my assumption there was not that the fundamental thing that I was trying to study was wrong. Um, my assumption almost always is to assume that I don't understand my experiment well enough and to devise little tests and little questions and little experiments to test my understanding of the equipment and to test, you know, I'll always pull it back to uh, a test case where I'm like, okay, I should 100% know the outcome of doing this test. So then I run that test and if that one is still failing, then I'm like, okay, there's something wrong with the equipment. Um, and maybe there's something wrong or maybe I've dialed it in wrong or I've got the wrong impedance matching or I've got, you know, like something um, something that I've failed to recognize is important in, in the experiment doing what I want it to do. And I think that would be a familiar experience to almost every experimenter, which is to go in with this overabundance of optimism that everything's going to work first time and then slowly work your way through the many, many, many ways in which you were wrong um, until you really fully understand everything that's happening. And then, then if you're testing your theory or, or maybe there isn't a theory, maybe you're just testing something that doesn't have a theory yet. And if then it's coming back and giving you a result that you don't expect then you start to get those little, you know, I'm getting shivers just saying it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But like those little shivers which say, oh, this is something new. This is a knowledge gap. This is um, mm. this is a potential to discover something that no one's ever seen before. And it's in that mode where you're both confident in your experiment that you can really ask the questions about the nature of reality. And in that moment, I think more often than not, you want to be wrong, right? You want mm. you want nature to be throwing a curveball at you. You you want it to be something surprising. Um, and and those are I think those are the moments in in which um, would be the closest that I think you would get to having sort of a eureka moment or that moment of I've seen something new for the very first time. Um, and it's only by working your way through those smaller steps that you can get to that level of confidence. And I think a lot of people 
don't realize that that is very much uh, the day-to-day role of an experimental scientist is working your way through these <laughs> annoying things. And, and you have to learn to love that process, right? You have to learn to love the small bits of understanding and the small discoveries that come along the way. You know, maybe you've discovered a new way of arranging your apparatus that um, happens to give you, you know, 10 times more signal than you had before. And that's really satisfying. Um, And so I think experimental science, for that reason, um, it sort of appeals to people who like to tinker. It appeals to the detail-orientated mind. At the same time, it has to appeal to people who have that bigger vision, you know, who have that um, longer term time frame. Because if you if you expect to go into the lab every day and make one discovery every day, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, but if you can keep in mind the big picture um, and work toward that over, and often it is years, you know, and keep that enthusiasm and keep that, that wonder um, that happens in the lab every day, I think that's the sort of personality type that fits experimental science very, very well. There's a point about your book that I, I really love you in talking about how big projects like the Large Hadron Collider, you've talked about this today as well, are illustrative of deeper points about human collaboration. Um, and I wonder if, in a way, you even alluded to this earlier when you were talking about what types of experiments are easier to talk about in, in the setting like uh, you know our conversation today. I wonder if these big collaborative stories like the Large Hadron Collider are more difficult to fit in the shape of a compelling and memorable narrative than stories with a single protagonist. Obviously, a lot of the the most inspiring and amazing stories in your book are about these huge mega projects with these unthinkable amounts of coordination and collaboration. Are there tricks to telling those stories in a way that makes them work as stories, but is still true to the reality? It was very difficult. Yes. So I will definitely acknowledge it is so much harder to write about enormous collaborations than it is to write about a few individuals. Um, And I think in terms of the story, uh, you know, the story arc or the narrative creation process, I had to find my own route through that. Um, And so I was looking for things like, okay, well, you know, if I'm if I'm creating a sort of story arc, so what you know, what would my crisis moment be? What would you know? What would a a, a sort of um, pinnacle moment be? What is my like sort of inciting idea uh, that sort of sets sets that story off on a journey? And you can find those things um, within the stories of the big experiments. It does make it harder to focus on an individual, um, but I actually in the end. Uh, especially for the Large Hadron Collider, I use myself as an example of a tiny, tiny individual within this enormous collaboration. And that worked for me partly because I actually didn't go on to to continue in that collaboration. I worked in it as a student. I did this very, very small project, which um, people love to uh, to recite the, the name of the project that I did, which was, um, uh, it was the design of a, no, hang on. I'm going to get it I'm going to get it wrong but it was the the design of a monitoring system for the heating for the sorry for the heaters of the cooling system of the inner detector of the atlas experiment <laughs> <laughs> you see, the I can't heaters even remember of it. the cooling system. No, the monitoring system. Yes, the yeah. monitoring system for the heaters of the cooling system. Uh, no, no, here, here, here. Okay, if you have a cooling system, uh, and 
you don't want it to all like clog up with um, condensation, right? So sometimes you need heaters on there to bring the temperature back up and stabilize it. Like you need to be able to move the temperature in two directions. Anyway, um, <laughs> so that was my crazy, you know, tiny little project that I did for three months when I was a, a summer student as an undergraduate working at CERN. And um, it was illustrative though of this idea that, you know, I, I was this t- sort of tiny cog in this enormous machine. Um, and I think the way I used that story was also to sort of say, I doubted that this machine could ever work because if I was making this contribution and deep within my code was the ability for, to switch the whole machine off, then surely, you know, statistically, this thing was never going, never going to work. Um, and so I was as surprised as everybody else. Um, well, I don't think the the actual rest of the collaboration would have been surprised when it worked, but um, I was surprised (laughs) from my experience when it worked as well as it did um, when they started the machine up. Uh, Of course, um, people who remember back in 2008 will remember that it worked for about seven days before it blew itself up. Um, And then they spent a year fixing it before it came back online. Um, Mm. And I I was at an event the other day where someone referred to the startup of the Large Hadron Collider in which they said about 2008, with a shake of the hand, you know, you know this, this sort of, you know, yeah. this Italian style like um, wobble of the hand that means roughly. Mm-hmm. They they did that. They said it started off in about two thousand and eight, and it was all about that hand wobble um, <laughs> of like, oh, that means the machine blew itself up and it had to be fixed for a year. Um, but anyway, so I'm getting off track onto the Large Hadron Collider. But I think I think yes, it is much more difficult um, to write narratives about enormous collaborations. But I think that speaks to something a little deeper and it's something which has come out of conversations with people now that we're studying even larger colliders. Um, So the next uh, one potential next iteration is 100 kilometres in circumference and will take about 40 years to, to, to build, to design and build. That's getting to the same length as or longer than a lot of careers in the field. Um, and so I think we are running into, and it's something that I've been talking to people about, a, a sort of too big, too long, too complex problem with these collaborations. And even though they, I find them awe-inspiring in what they have been able to achieve, if I was given the choice again now, you know, I'm a student, I'm raring to go in this field, I'm really interested um, what would I choose to work on for, say, my PhD? Now, at, at the age of you know early 20s, embarking on a PhD, which can be anywhere between about three and however many years, you know, seven, eight years for some people, it's a huge commitment and a huge chunk of your life at that age. And anecdotally, I hear stories of professors who are struggling to recruit students to projects um, for the, the sort of next mega colliders because they're like, well, there's not going to be any data to work with for 40 years. Like, how am I going to have a career in this? Why would I commit three to seven years to something that might not even be built? Um, And so uh, I don't want to make out like there's a crisis or a lack of people who are interested and very committed to this field, but I just hear inklings of dissatisfaction or sort of little, little inklings of, of, of trouble. Um, And I'm, I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about how we're going to resolve that. 
Um, and I guess there's two paths. Either we find a way to resolve that through the career structure and through having shorter projects um, alongside these big long ones that you know keep people motivated and keep uh, keep everyone working. Or we really have to think about: Are these projects too big? Um, should we really be focusing all our energy on technologies which can um, shrink down the size of future collider projects, which is very very difficult, um, although they are in progress, um, and uh, and and also just refocus back down on the sort of structure in which these collaborations work. Because realistically, you've got groups of about 10 to 20 people in, in a research group in a university. Those work on specific sub-areas of the experiment, and then they all join together, and eventually you get, you know, 2,000 people. Um, and so it's not it's not that 2,000 people are sort of an egalitarian, you know, flat uh, structure who all somehow know each other um, and communicate. That would be absolutely wild. Um, there is a substructure. And so... I'm interested in how we can use that substructure that works very well in small, close-knit groups who then um, go out and work with other groups around the world. Perhaps there's a way we can do that in the time domain as well, right? Um, so perhaps there's a way of having more contained sections of projects, um, perhaps with applications that, you know, that sort of keep people interested on that sort of, you know, few-year timescale um, that can drive things along. So maybe instead of in the future, instead of contributing to hardware or sitting in a control room, maybe you're contributing to the societal applications of um, the spin-offs of the work that you're doing alongside developing the longer-term um, curiosity-driven part. Um, it's that's just my idea. It's um, very much an, an unsolved thing, but um, I think if I was given the chance again, I I would struggle to commit to a project that wasn't going to have data for forty years. So I, I do want to acknowledge that it's a very interesting time for young people to be entering, entering the field in that sense. Right at the end of the book, you offer a couple of big lessons that you think we need to embrace for the future of physics and collaborative research projects. Do you want to mention those before we sign off? Yes, yeah, so I think some of the things that I've learned through writing the book around collaboration and this curiosity-driven research is that it is so important that we value it, that we value its impact in society, and that we create space for people to do this kind of research. Um, not just space, but also it requires funding. And I know it sounds a little dirty to mix curiosity-driven research and, and money, but um, in our society, those two things are going to have to go hand in hand. So you know, if in the future we want to be able to create um, collaborations so we can really get the best out of specialized skills that people have um, to the betterment of society, we need to really think about um, how we value things that don't set out with a goal in mind. Um, and I think we need to center those and we need to really value the fact that somebody would commit their life and their career to something where they don't even know what the outcome is going to look like. We need to protect that with everything that we have because that is such a generative force in our society for good. Susie Sheehy, uh, thank you so much for talking today. It has been a privilege and a pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again to Susie Sheehy for being so generous with her time. Uh, if you want to pick up a copy of the book, it is called The Matter of Everything. The Matter of Everything. And it's out in hardback, in ebook form, and as an audiobook narrated by Susie herself. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a show about science and culture with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays of each week, but we also put out a number of other offerings. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode where we feature messages that listeners like you send into our email address, which is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. On Wednesdays, we run a short-form episode called The Artifact or The Monster Fact, and on Friday, we do a special format show called Weird House Cinema, which is devoted purely to the study and appreciation of strange movies, good or bad, well-known or obscure, as long as they're weird. And then on Saturdays, we feature an older episode of the show from The Vault. A huge thanks to J.J. Posway, our excellent audio producer. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, again, that email address is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.